God, if you are out there, please help me. We should all rejoice to know that God has mercifully answered such prayers of desperation countless times. But it is nothing short of tragic, we would say, in addition, that when a person's prayer life remains locked in this SOS mode of communication with God, it's not good. Such prayers may honestly express our soul's desperation at the moment, but they hardly reveal a robust faith in God, do they? If you are out there. Leaves the very existence of God in question. And it really betrays perhaps an idolatrous heart that desires help more than it desires God. If God is out there, I'll take help from Him. But I'll take help wherever help will appear. But no healthier is the prayer life that emanates from a self-dependent heart which finds no need to cry out to God in desperation at all. A prayer life that knows nothing of the desperation of soul that passionately throws itself upon the strong arms of God. Such prayer life is lifeless formality, not vibrant communication. And no healthier yet is the prayer life that has not matured beyond badgering God to change His mind. Constantly whining for Him to indulge our selfish desires. In the quest for a mature prayer life that genuinely communes with the living God on an intimate and effectual level, we turn last week to the model prayer of the prophet Daniel. For those who long to genuinely commune with God, not simply asking for help wherever it may come from, not dead and lifeless that knows no passion and need, and certainly not that kind of prayer life that simply badgers God, if we want to move beyond that, to genuinely commune with God, laboring alongside of Him in the execution of His sovereign purposes in this world, then I invite you back to Daniel's prayer this morning. I'd like to briefly review this prayer and then to seek to follow its trajectory to Christ and God's saving purposes through Him. Daniel chapter 9, if you'll turn there again. As we do this, by God's grace, we will be stimulated in our souls and deepen the orientation of our prayers so that we learn what it is to walk in genuine communion with God. I hope that is your desire. I hope that that is your interest. Daniel chapter 9, remembering as we looked at it last week that Daniel is likely in his mid-80s. His career as a court advisor in Babylon is drawing to a close. Reading God's written word to the prophet Jeremiah, Daniel understands that God has determined to restore Israel to the promised land after she has suffered 70 years in captivity for her rebellion against God. Now that 70-year period of captivity is nearing an end, and Daniel seeks God in earnest prayer. You remember at verses 3 and following through to verse 15, we have Daniel's confession. He labors in prayer to see God's people as God sees them, as sinners in need of forgiveness. And so we read, for instance, in verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and your rules. 
Verse 14, therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, this Babylonian captivity. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. In the second half of the prayer we read, beginning at verse 16, Daniel's petition to the Lord. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins. And for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your sake O Lord make your face shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate the temple on Mount Zion O my God incline your ear and hear open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness but because of your great mercy O Lord hear O Lord forgive O Lord pay attention and act delay not for your own sake O my God because your city and your people are called by your name having pleaded With God to forgive the sins of his people, Daniel prays that God would glorify the splendor of his name through his people. Now specifically, from Daniel's perspective, what does that mean? If we're putting together his prayer in the context of that time, this can mean nothing other than that God would restore the temple where God had chosen to center his worship. We notice in verse 17 the reference there to the sanctuary. That is the temple at Jerusalem. And it is at this moment in utter ruins. What does that say? It convinces the nations that God is a defeated and incompetent God. As far as they're concerned, when your temple's in ruins, you're no good. Remember the god Dagon who fell over and his hands fell off and then he fell over again and his head fell off and what did it show before the ark of God even in captivity that Dagon was nothing? Well now God's temple is in ruins which says to the nations that there are greater gods than the god who defeated Dagon. His sanctuary is in ruins. But now that Israel has been disciplined By God. Daniel prays that God will forgive her sins, restore the nation to the land, and allow her to rebuild this temple so that God's name is once again magnified among the nations. This is his burden. Daniel so ably taps the purposes of God in his prayer that God directly answers him. And Daniel recounts the experience, beginning at verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. What's that? That's the first half of his prayer right there in summary. Verse 15, verses 3 through 15. While I was confessing my sin and the sin of my people, and the second half of his prayer, verses 16 through 19, in the middle of verse 20, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. 
So the man Gabriel, the angel that God had sent to reveal truth to Daniel earlier under the reign of Belshazzar over Babylon chapter 8, comes and answers Daniel's prayer. That's what you call an answer to prayer. He prays and an angel comes to address his prayer. Verse 22, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. The beginning of your plea for mercy is this prayer in chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. That's the prayer. Gabriel has come then to deliver God's answer. The answer comes in verses 24 through 27. And there has been much ink spilled over this difficult section of Scripture. But as we look at it, it is clearly a prophecy in cryptic terms. The gist of is how God will glorify his name through the outworking of his redemptive purposes in the future. We're not going to take time to dig through this whole difficult section. But we see here in verse 24 that there are 70 weeks decreed about your people and your holy city, to finish transgression, put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. We don't even need to take the time to go through each phrase to realize God's saying, I'm going to wrap it up here. I'm giving you the whole picture. The wrapping up of the work of salvation on this earth is all here in this prophecy. Know therefore, verse 25, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem... To the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come, I think this is at a later time, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to this end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And then I think looking into the future, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now as we put these weeks together, we come to understand that they are weeks of years, in particular lunar years. So Gabriel explains to Daniel that what is most important is not really the rebuilding of the temple, verse 25, it will be rebuilt, rest assured, Daniel, but verse 26, it will be destroyed again and eventually desecrated. But Daniel, understand this, a king is coming, we understand now to be king, Artaxerxes, He will issue a decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, depending on how we put the calendar together, 444 B.C. or 445 B.C. 483 years then after that decree, now it's a pretty objective thing, there's going to be a decree to the captive Israelites to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. From the moment of that decree, 483 years later, an anointed one will come. This anointed one is the Hebrew word Mashiach, or as we say in English, Messiah. This anointed one, this Messiah, will come at that time. 
a prince, that is, one of royal blood. And anyone in Israel knows the princes come from the tribe of Judah. So there will be an anointed one, a Messiah, from the tribe of Judah, who will come 483 years after this decree. And Daniel's getting a little more than he asked for, isn't he? An amazing prophecy. Verse 25, this anointed one will come. Verse 26, he will be cut off. Another prince will come, verse 26, and before he comes, his people, the Romans, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, which will take place in 70 A.D. Now let's stop for just a moment. God's answer to Daniel's faithful prayer goes well beyond anything Daniel could have possibly imagined. Daniel knows that God has chosen to link the glory of his name with the temple at Jerusalem. But God cryptically reveals here that God will do something greater than merely rebuild the temple. The temple will be rebuilt, it will be destroyed, and God doesn't seem to be too terribly worried about that in this prophecy. But the essence of God's redemptive purposes will be bound up not with the temple, but with the coming anointed one. Now at this point, we begin in our minds with our biblical knowledge to fill in the pieces of what is taking place here. But at this point, let's begin to trace out the trajectory of Daniel's prayer as it moves inexorably to this anointed one in time. 483 years after Artaxerxes' decree for the Jews to return to Israel and rebuild Jerusalem. What happened? Jesus of Nazareth rode into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey and was hailed by exuberant crowds as the anointed one. The long prophesied Messiah had come, just as God had revealed to Daniel. And during the earthly ministry of Jesus, we find him tracking with the same general themes that gripped the heart of Daniel centuries early. Daniel is on track here. He's working with the purposes of God in prayer, and we see Jesus doing the very same thing. In the first exhibit, we see Daniel's brokenhearted angst over Israel's rebellion resounded in the lamentations of Jesus recorded in Matthew 23. I encourage you to turn there. Matthew chapter 23. Jesus' lamentations for Israel, found in verse 37 of Matthew chapter 23. Here Jesus cries out in his soul, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Matthew 23 and verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not see. Your house is left to you desolate. And then a word of horror and hope. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jerusalem, the capital city, represents the nation God chose to save as his special treasure. The Jews have returned from the Babylonian captivity. They have rebuilt Jerusalem. There is now a magnificent temple that stood on Mount Zion. But while Israel never again practiced formal idolatry after the discipline of the Babylonian captivity, she continued to rebel against God's word. And as the prophet Daniel before him, so Jesus pours out heartfelt grief over Israel's sin. Here, not in the role of one praying to God, but here in the role of God speaking to his people. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 
And as we think back on Daniel's prayer with Jesus' lamentation here, comparing the two, we discover some remarkable linkage between them. On the left column here, you'll see the burden of Daniel or Jesus, and then in the next columns, Daniel's prayer and excerpts directly from that prayer and directly from Jesus' lamentation. We notice the concern for Jerusalem that is parallel in both. Your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, praise Daniel. Jesus, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, as he addresses the city. The burden of God's grace spurned by God's people. Daniel prays to the Lord, belong mercy and forgiveness. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord. Jesus, how often would I have gathered your children as a hen, and you would not. The burden of grief over Israel's rejection of God's prophets. And Daniel prays, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name. We have not obeyed God's voice. Jesus in Matthew 23, Jerusalem kills the prophet and stones those who are sent to it. And a similar burden of divine judgment, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, praise Daniel. Jesus lament, your house is left to you desolate. It would appear that these two are working off the same page. Indeed, they are working off the same page. They are tracking with the very purposes of God in their prayer. In Daniel's prayer and Jesus' lamentation, and bolstered by many other prayers in the Bible, we conclude that a heart in tune with God is a heart that grieves over the sin of God's people, that takes it seriously, that discerns the purposes of God. And what is more, a heart in tune with God is a heart that yearns for the reconciliation of sinners with God, that labors in prayer that those who have spurned him and turned from him would come to repentance and faith and trust and forgiveness. Daniel's prayer did not end with lamentation over Israel's sin. It ended with a passionate appeal to God. Oh Lord, according to your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. It says to us as God's people that a vibrant prayer life tracks with the purposes of God by praying and laboring for the divine forgiveness of sinners. It longs for this. It desires it. And it should mark our prayers. As we mentioned, though, last week, the Old Testament never, never really answers how God does this. How God is righteous and according to His righteousness He forgives. We all understand how a judge who is righteous will judge properly. But how can a judge be righteous and also forgive? How can justice be served and sinners forgiven? Daniel only knew of the mercy and forgiveness of God, but there really was no ultimate answer to how this works itself out. But stretching well beyond what Daniel could fully grasp, God answered Daniel's prayer for forgiveness by what? By cutting off the anointed one. The answer to Daniel's prayer was not merely the rebuilding of the sanctuary in Jerusalem where God was worshipped. The ultimate answer to Daniel's prayer was located in the person of Messiah, Jesus Christ, who tabernacled among us, John 1.14. 
using direct imagery from that tabernacle that went among the Israelites and ultimately became the temple. The ultimate sanctuary, the ultimate temple in which God's glory would reside was Jesus. Think of this in light of John 2 where Jesus answered his enemies. Think of these words if you're putting this together. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. The temple of his body. The forgiveness of sins could only be secured in one way. And that was not the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, but it was for Messiah's temple to be cut off, to be left desolate as Jesus could provide a sinless substitute for sinners. As man, Jesus could die in the sinner's place, paying the penalty of sin, which is death. No temple could do this, but the temple, Christ. Providing such mercy, that is, showing in the sacrifice of Christ the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness, will indeed result in our glorifying God forever and ever, according to Ephesians 2 and verse 7. So we see the linkage then again back to Daniel's prayer. In the second half of Daniel's prayer, what is the passion? He pours out his heart for the glory of God, that God would exercise his power to magnify his name, and his prayer for forgiveness terminates ultimately then in Jesus So his prayer for God's glory finds its resolution in the Messiah who is promised in the answer of Gabriel. But this resolution led inexorably to the cross for Jesus. And in light of that great sacrifice, we see what the prayer of Daniel for God's glory meant to Jesus. For Daniel, all he could see was the reestablishment, the rebuilding of the temple. But ultimately, he prayed more than he knew. And it would mean something very specific for Jesus Christ. And it's here that we turn to Jesus' prayer for God's glory. Mark chapter 14. There are various places where this theme could be drawn out, but we find it here in such pointed terms. We are following here Jesus' betrayal by Judas. Following the institution of the Lord's Supper to instruct his followers concerning his pending death. Jesus knows what's coming here. He journeyed with the disciples then to the Mount of Olives just beyond the eastern wall of Jerusalem. And in verse 32, we read of Mark 14, 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. The euphoria of the meal is over. The place of linking together his ministry, his death, and the Passover was past. And now his mind turns fully to the sacrifice he will make for sin. And he said to them, verse 34, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Jesus knows that he is to become God's Passover lamb, dying in behalf of sinners The anticipated agony of being separated as a sin offering from his father's fellowship is tearing Jesus' heart apart at the seams. 
And so verse 35, going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. The word cup speaks figuratively of the outpouring of God's wrath against sinners in the Old Testament. So Jesus is pleading for the Father to deliver him from suffering the wrath of God on the cross. In a moment of severe temptation, Jesus issues this request but follows it quickly in answering that temptation. Remove this cup from me. He answers it with the following phrase, yet not what I will but what you will. Daniel labored in prayer for God to act to glorify his name by restoring his people. In a dark garden, Jesus agonizes in the interest of the very same passion. He realized the issue was not the rebuilding of the temple on Mount Zion, but the destruction of his own temple. But because he longed for the Father to glorify his name and the salvation of his people, Jesus yielded to the only plan by which that could happen. At all cost, glorify your name, prayed Daniel, not knowing where that prayer would ultimately lead. At all cost, glorify your name, prayed Jesus, knowing exactly where that prayer would ultimately lead. John 17, we find Jesus praying again and anticipating all that he would accomplish in this world. He says in John 17, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, that's the ultimate forgiveness of sin, eternal life to the sinner. And verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. In contrast to those of whom Daniel and Jesus spoke of as having failed to heed God's will. Think back on that. We didn't listen. The kings didn't listen. The prophets didn't listen. The people didn't listen. Jesus crying out, Oh, Jerusalem, you've not heard the prophets. In contrast to these prayers, Jesus prays in John 17 that God would sanctify His people through the truth. That God would rescue a people for His own who are obedient to His Word, who live out His truth, who are zealous for good works. In other words, Jesus came to rescue His people from their sins and to empower them to live righteous lives. He addressed the prayer of Daniel beyond Daniel's imagination. The wrath of God against sin was poured out on Jesus who died in the sinner's place to pay the penalty of our sins. And now forgiven, we are freed from the wrath of God and granted the Holy Spirit by which we can live redeemed lives. The Spirit that the living Christ has poured out upon His church so that we would live the way that God wants us to live. It is this power and this power alone that will bring us through. We stand in that grace. We benefit from that provision. We are fitted for glory because the Son yielded to death and rose again for the forgiveness of our sins. I think we pray very much like Daniel. 
We will see. And eternity will bear this out. But I think there are many times when our prayers track with the purposes of God. He is answering them in ways that we cannot fully perceive. As Daniel begins this prayer, there is no way that he could possibly put all of this together and understand what he was actually saying. And so, with us, in like measure, at times, we pray what we do not know. But do our prayers track with the purposes of God? Like Daniel, and even more so, God has revealed much about his saving purposes and how his name will be glorified in the future. And like Daniel, that should stimulate us to join God's purposes in our prayers. The question is often asked among those who believe in the sovereignty of God, why pray? God knows what's going to happen. God is going to do what is going to happen. Why on earth do we pray? As if the purpose of prayer is to change God's mind and to secure our own purposes against His. We pray because it's a communion with God in what He's doing. It's a communion with God in His purposes and His plan for this world which He has revealed in His Word. We know, for instance, that Jesus is saving souls whom God has given to Him from all nations. Do we earnestly pray then that God's purposes would be realized in this regard? Is that a characteristic of our prayer lives? That we plead with God to forgive sinners, to bring people to repentance. This is why one reason that we gather corporately as a church on Wednesday nights. Each month there is a global emphasis. We pray through these global emphases because we believe that this is what God is doing. He is praying to bring people to Himself throughout the world and we want to labor systematically that we would work with God through our prayers to see souls saved in various portions of this planet. We emphasize a missionary and pray for them and we read missionary letters as reports that are bringing back to us, showing us the work of God in various places in this earth. This is why during our all-night prayer meeting we have a sheet of paper in in the middle of the night pray through the various regions of this earth that God would save souls for Himself. And this is why we encourage private prayers in our own devotional lives. And I encourage you to be praying about the salvation of the lost and the repentance of God's people worldwide. I have an Operation World calendar on my desk and I will admit At times, it doesn't flip as quickly as the days do. You forget. We get busy. But I would encourage something along those lines where it's very nicely laid out for us to see the various nations of this earth and to have a brief report about the gospel's progress there and how we can pray according to the purposes of God to see Christ's name exalted. Are we praying to that end? If we're not actively praying that God would save souls and send out labors into the harvest, we need to retool our prayer lives to begin with. Perhaps to rethink the very focus of our lives. God has revealed so much more as well to us concerning which we should be laboring in prayer. We know that Christ will come again. Do we pray about it? Jesus said of His people that they will fast and pray for His return. Do we pray? Do we have such longing in our heart that we're willing to set aside food that we would pray that Jesus would come back? 
And I know no one would be this smug, but somebody can say he's coming back anyway. I don't have to miss lunch to do that. And I really, in the end, really don't have to pray about Jesus coming back either. He said he's coming back. I believe he's coming back. Why on earth should I pray about it? To commune with the purposes of God, to get our heads set on what they should be set on. Imagine the maturity of prayer in our lives that's pleading with Christ to come again to establish his kingdom for the final demise of Satan, for the full redemption of this planet. And compare that then with prayers of mere desperation or badgering and pleading with God to do what we want him to do. He's calling us to a higher life. He's calling us to a greater experience in prayer and to a deeper communion with him than that. If the example of Daniel and Jesus mean anything, they would further commend us to pray with broken hearts for the purity, the revival, and the sanctification of God's people. That we would be broken-hearted to desire the goodness of those who have been redeemed. For this reason, we commend the use of prayer lists in our church of uh, sheets that are provided in little slips as well, different forms of praying for the people of this assembly and encouraging all to add to that page other names as God leads people to your mind to labor in prayer for the purity of God's people. This is what Jesus came to secure. A people zealous for good works. May he find us praying with zeal that we would live righteously before God. We're a sinful church. God's people throughout this world are sinful people. We fall short of the glory of God. We fail His word. And we need to be laboring in prayer that God would rescue us. That His mercies would reside upon us. That we would walk in fellowship. And ultimately, obviously, placing all of our hope in this anointed one and His death in our place. Daniel's prayer confessing sin and petitioning God to glorify his name was answered because he tapped the very purposes of God's heart. May we join him. May we be like Daniel as we point not forward but back to the work of Jesus and then from there forward to his coming again and labor with God in what is interesting to God. And I do not mean by that that the nitty-gritty details of our life are not interesting to him. They're far more interesting than we would ever know or that we could ever perceive ourselves. And we should lay out our burdens and our prayers and petitions before Him in weakness as little children coming to our Father. But along with the Apostle Paul, I issue an appeal here using his idea, his words, that we would move on to maturity that we would move past the simple childlike prayers of saying, give me this and fix this. And that we would plead with God for His purposes to be realized. Sometimes that pertains to the very nitty-gritty of our life. I have a professor who uh, was in a church where some individual had cancer. It looked very grim. It looked like it would be a very short fight unless God directly intervened and they called a prayer meeting and everyone came together and prayed that this person would be healed. And one woman prayed and said that she desired the healing of God, but if it would be the will of God that this saint would die, that she and the church would bring glory to the name of the Lord. 
And the report of the professor was that that woman got hit after that prayer meeting pretty hard. I people wondering where she ever had the gall to claim that God may not want to heal someone with cancer. Even in the nitty-gritty of life, in the details of life as we pray about it, we need to always come back to this point that it is God's will that must be done as we labor with not to change his mind, but to fit into his purposes. It's right to pray for healing. It's right to pray, should that be the will of God? But may we always remember that it is God's will that must reign supreme. He does not answer all of our individual petitions with a yes, but there are petitions that we can pour out that we know are according to the name of Christ. They fit the purposes of God, and we should join with those broader purposes and let those purposes fill our prayers so that we are laboring with God to do what God has gone on record to say He longs to do. We offer no prayers wondering if God is out there. But we offer every prayer knowing that He is and that He will rush to the aid of His people who come to Him in faith and that He will save souls. May we learn to pray alongside His saving purposes for His glory and for our joy in Christ. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, I ask that you would encourage our hearts as we look at these matters. It is very easy for us to realize how small we are, how infantile are so many of our prayers. But God, I pray that you would teach us to labor alongside of the work that you are doing in this world. To have the experience of Daniel, perhaps not directly in that way, but to know that we are indeed tapping your purposes and perhaps someday to be even be informed by an angel in glory as to what our prayers accomplished in this world. We realize we will never know. We'll never know until then, perhaps. But God, I pray that it would be our joy to walk in maturity with you to pray as if you are there, to ask for your help, to pour out our souls in desperate prayers of need. But Father, to move past the petty petitions of small matters, and though trusting you in them and pouring out our heart concerning them, may we move past to pray, Father, for your very purposes in this world the salvation of the lost, the sanctification of your people, the glory of your name, established in the coming King Jesus Christ, who will turn over the kingdom to you, our Father. And Satan will be gone, and sin will be removed, and through all eternity, your name will be praised by forgiven sinners, as it should be praised. God, we long for that day. We're so far short of it. In our personal lives and in a fallen world, we are so far short of it. But Lord, we pray for the return of our Savior. We plead for it. We ask that you will bring the course of history to the conclusion that you have designed, that your name would be magnified in us as your people. 
hear the cries that are ascending in prayer right now for forgiveness. Hear the cries that ascend for comfort and for sanctification. God, as we sung earlier today, we rejoice that there is no condemnation in Christ and that nothing can separate us from your love. So God, hear our prayer, hear our cry, and work for the glory of your name through us as your people to the ends of the earth. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.